Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out my two other popular podcasts. I speak with Martin Cooper, former U.S. Navy submarine officer, Korean War participant, and father of the cell phone, about the development of the cell phone and communications technology at technologyandspace.com. I also speak with Sarah Reed, author of the Bram Stoker award-winning book, The Bone Weaver's Orchard, and that can be heard at fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Brian Gibby, author of Korean Showdown, National Policy and Military Strategy in a Limited War, 1951 to 1952, published by University of Alabama Press, January 12, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. Well, thanks a lot for the invitation. So first, um, how did you get started, or, or how did you end up writing a book on this subject? Well, I'm a serving uh, active duty Army officer, mm-hmm. and that is what has uh, really brought me into the field of military history. Mm-hmm. And uh, although serving on active duty, all of my academic work has been uh, on my own, on my own time and resources. So mm-hmm. all the opinions that I express are mine and, and do not reflect those of the United States, United States government. Mm-hmm. Um, I was commissioned as a military intelligence officer in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And I was very interested in uh, the German army of World War II, armored warfare, and the conflict with, with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. But I ended up. Uh, getting posted to Korea, uh, much much to my surprise, in the in the very late nineties to uh, two thousand, and uh, although I knew I knew a little bit about the Korean War, uh, principally what most Americans know, mm-hmm. it gets sandwiched between World War Two, which had unconditional surrender and apparently total victory, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Vietnam, which had a very unsatisfactory ending and was very controversial at home. And really brought um, you know a lot of a lot of problems for the United States Army. Uh, so Korea gets sandwiched in between these two conflicts, and that's why it carries the nickname of the Forgotten War. Mm-hmm. Um, most Americans uh, either don't you know they don't know what it was about, why it was fought, and why it ended, or how it ended. Uh, so my service in Korea really opened my eyes uh, to to kind of this historical problem. And when I went to graduate school, I did my work. Uh, principally about the American military advisors to the South Korean Army. And uh, that resulted in my first book called The Will to Win, American Military Advisors in Korea. And in the process of looking at how the Americans trained and organized the Korean Army, uh, I came upon this battle that takes place in October 1952. And it's an American-led operation. It's called Operation Showdown. And that's where the title of this book comes from, Korean Showdown. And it was the last uh, deliberate offensive effort undertaken by the Americans uh, in the Korean War in an attempt to try and, and solve uh, the stalemate that had developed uh, by October 1992. Uh, so I kind of put this in, you know, in the back of my rucksack because I wasn't ready to really develop it yet. Uh, and then about uh, 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to, to start digging into this. And what I learned was was really quite interesting that the battle itself uh, was in response to a Chinese offensive that had started in September of 1952. And that offensive was in response uh, to the Americans 
cutting off uh, the negotiations at the end of September of 1952 hmm. because of the conflict over the resolution of prisoners of war. And that came about because of a decision that President Harry Truman made in February of 1952 that the United States would not accept an armistice agreement that required the compulsory or, or forced repatriation of prisoners of war. So I saw that there was this long chain of causation between this particular battle that practically nobody knows anything about, uh, which, by the, way, by the way, does not end very successfully for the Americans, uh, which is one of the, one of the reasons why uh, President Eisenhower, when he takes office in January of 53, is willing to settle the Korean War substantially uh, under, under the, uh, the objectives that have been articulated by President Truman. Uh, so I saw that there was this linkage between a policy decision made in Washington uh, that was not popular with soldiers uh, because it promised to extend the war potentially indefinitely. And it was very frustrating for the field commanders who, re who now had to fight the war to get the Chinese to agree to a condition that was ideologically antithetical to their very existence. Uh, the idea that an individual could exercise choice, you know, to where they wanted to live. Right. Uh, it was about two thirds of the Chinese prisoners of war had indicated that that they did not want to go back to communist China. So this was a big deal for the Chinese. Uh, so American commanders had to uh, they had to apply enough pressure to make the Chinese give in, but at the same time, not so much pressure that it makes it look like the Chinese have lost. So they have to kind of split this, this fine line. And this produces these, these operations and tactics uh, at the ground level that are, that are really very hazardous to the individual soldier. And, uh, you know, when I look through the resources of uh, officers and men who fought in this particular battle, Operation Showdown, uh, you know, one of the things that they testify to is uh, what they perceived as kind of the futility of why are we conducting this attack against a very strong enemy, uh, deeply entrenched, when the war is supposed to be at a stalemate and we're supposed to have an armistice and go home? It, it, it didn't quite compute. Uh, and so this book is really uh, analyzing the struggle uh, that principally the Americans, although I do talk about the Chinese and, and the Koreans to some degree, uh, at the strategic level, how do they... Uh, fix this problem between policy, which is asking for something that's very hard to deliver, and then the tactics on the ground of the soldiers who actually have to put it in, into play. Mm -hmm. It sounds like um, the civilian government, the U.S. government, sort of had faith that the U.S. military, for some, uh, whatever they were thinking, it seemed that they were expecting success, military success, and, you know, and thus put pressure on China and Korea, North Korea to give in. Um, what, yes. what was there? Were they just hoping or did, was there something concrete where they actually felt they could succeed with this operation? Yeah. So for President Truman, President Truman is in a very difficult situation uh, from the very beginning of the, of the conflict, because the Korean, um, the Korean War is not a declared war. Congress never said, you know, we are at war with uh, with Korea. Uh, so the, the intervention is really at Truman's political um, liability 
he's assuming all the political risk uh, to take the country to war. And he's doing it under the, the umbrella of the United Nations. Hmm. So the United States is the executive agent for the United Nations Security Council, which includes communist Russia, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, force the North Koreans out of South Korea to start with, which we did, and it was it was very successful. You know, the, the Incheon uh, operation that General Douglas MacArthur launched clears South Korea substantially of North Korean soldiers. But now Truman is faced with, well, what do we what do we do now? Because under the World War II model, you know, there there should be a surrender, mm-hmm. and the North Koreans should should give up, but but they don't. Um, so MacArthur is is given permission af- after some you know a little bit of back and forth. He's given permission to proceed north of the 38th parallel, uh, which was the the pre-war boundary, imagine an imaginary boundary, and and then it becomes a, a problem of the Americans trying to figure out when when do we know we've won? When can we say we have been successful? Uh, so this, you know, this bleeds into then the Chinese intervention and discussion about maybe we should maybe we should just leave Korea, evacuate Korea, because the real conflict is with the Soviets, and we think the real war is going to be in Europe. Hmm. So why would we invest so much liability in East Asia if that's not really, you know, the the, the main theater? Um, but uh, thanks to General Matthew Ridgway, who becomes the the Eighth Army Commander after. Uh, General Walton Walker dies in a, in a vehicle accident. Uh, Ridgeway's ability to kind of reanimate the American Army and, and the UN allies to kind of reassure them as well that, that he's not going to march all the way you know, to China uh, really turns the military situation around. So I think the president kind of sees that, aha, you know, we were, we were really in trouble in December and January, and now with my guy Ridgeway, in charge, it's looking a lot better. Mm-hmm. And the the 8th Army and the United Nations allies were, were, were moving forward and were even crossing the 38th parallel again uh, by by June. In between this, in April of 1951 is when General MacArthur gets relieved for insubordination. And President Truman, not surprisingly, elevates General Ridgway to take MacArthur's place. So now Truman thinks, okay, I got my guy who, who's, who can fight and will fight in a way that won't start World War III, and he's running the show. He's in command of all the United Nations contingents. He's in command of the, uh, the South Korean Army and the, the American Air Force Army and, and Naval Force in, in Korea. And this perhaps gives Truman a, a false sense of, of what can be accomplished uh, because of this really – miraculous uh, turnaround. So. And in June of 1951 is when the Soviets indicate their willingness to support a negotiated settlement. And the president embraces that and gives Ridgeway the mission, get, get us an honorable armistice. And so I, I think it's, you know, from that point, that, that's kind of where the, the two now kind of diverge is that there's this political sense of what we need to do to get an armistice so we can get out of Korea and get ready for the real war against the Soviets. And General Ridgway, who is, uh, is, is handicapped because he can only talk about military issues. But like I said before, you know, you, you can't put so much pressure on the enemy that it makes them want to fight harder because they don't want to look like 
they lost. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the prisoners of war issue, I think the the president, uh, he's investing a lot of faith in Ridgeway, that Ridgeway can pull it off. But Ridgeway is honest and says, I I don't think we can do it with the resources that you get. I'm speaking with Brian Gibby, author of Korean Showdown. You can find more information about his work at the University of Alabama Press website. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So this is kind of a wonky question. Um, So it sounds like Truman didn't have his people actually analyze what an operation would look like. You know, the you know, strengths and weaknesses and, and you know, where are you going to attack and, and what success are you going to have? It seems more like he he saw it in very fluffy terms, like, oh, these things were going poorly before and now they're better. You know, so my cards look good to me without really analyzing really what had changed. You know, President Sherman was a captain in World War One. Mm-hmm. and commanded an artillery battery in that war. He was a, a National Guard officer. And that experience of being a, a non-professional, non-regular soldier, I, I think kind of um, kind of conditioned him a little bit to be uh, suspicious about regular military officers and, and in particular um, generals. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that when the war's when the when the North Koreans invade South Korea, President Truman's first um, his first efforts at trying to figure out what should we do is not to consult the Joint Chiefs of Staff, his four star generals and admirals. It's to consult his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, mm-hmm. who civilian all the way and uh, do- doesn't have uh, any military experience, but is very intelligent. And kind of sees the, the bigger picture uh, pretty well and advises the president, I, I think, pretty pretty well for someone who doesn't have that military uh, that military angle. Mm-hmm. And, and the president um, tended to kind of hold, hold those military officers kind of at, at arm's length. And it was really Dean Acheson that uh, through him that he developed you know, what was going to be American policy and, and kind of the American strategy that then the Joint Chiefs would turn into operational language and transmit those instructions to first MacArthur and, and then Ridgeway and then finally General Mark Clark. So, yeah, you know, Truman's, Truman's thoughts are, are, are really at that higher level of, of policy and, uh, and what I want to have done. And one of the things that he wanted to have done is he wanted to make sure that aggression came with a price tag. So, you know, he's very mindful of, uh, of the Munich compromise of 1938 and how many people thought that encouraged Adolf Hitler to, to kind of keep going, keep rolling the dice. And, and he very much saw the North Korean invasion as being the Soviet inspired, you know, attempt to, to take over, you know, world domination. So he wanted aggression to have a penalty. 
It's, and since that penalty was not going to be military defeat, that was going to be too hard to achieve with, with the communist Chinese in the war. Uh, I think he saw prisoner repatriation as being kind of that ideological tool that I can, I can poke the communists in the eye and make it, make it look like we actually did win some. It's interesting because, um, and I don't want to turn this into any kind of Truman bashing, but another historian I talked to about, it was about the use of the atomic bomb, uh, mentioned that Harry S. Truman was, uh, as a vice presidential candidate, he was brought on, FDR had another candidate in mind, um, but Truman was brought on because he was basically a non-threatening vice president to everyone involved. He was yeah. kind of, you know, non, non-consequential in a sense. And so he allowed FDR to win re-election again because no one on either side, political side, objected to Truman. And then he ends up becoming president. And it's kind of interesting that you say that he didn't, intellectually, he didn't like the military wonks, and instead he turns towards a diplomat, basically, to make this military decisions. Yeah, uh, I think you know the one exception to that to that generalization is General George Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Truman had tremendous respect for Marshall, uh, and you know they work they work very closely together to end end the war. But then Marshall retires uh, and, and becomes a civilian. After Marshall goes to China and he's there for about a year a year and a half, but he returns, becomes a civilian, and becomes Truman's Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Atchison follows, follows after Marshall. So by the time you get to 1950, to Korea, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is Omar Bradley, who you know is, is very famous, is justly famous for you know, what he did in the Second World War, um, but he's not, he's not a Truman man. You know, he, Bradley got his, you know, his four stars working for um, President Roosevelt in the Second World War, and so I think you know Truman just he, he just didn't develop that those that kind of relationship with his senior military people the way Roosevelt had really cultivated uh, relationships with Marshall and and Admiral King during during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So um, so let's go a little bit into the weeds of of the actual operation. Um, you mentioned that the the soldiers participating in it, some of them at least, were unhappy with it. And it's you know you think about World War II just a few years before, you would never imagine soldiers saying, "Why are we fighting this?" You know, because they were out to destroy Nazi Germany or right. you know Imperial Japan. And yet now we have soldiers who are like, "What what are we here for? What are we doing?" That's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. So you know, two problems for the American GI in 1950. Uh, a lot of them, particularly in, in the officer ranks, are recalled reservists. So the, these are people who fought the big one. Mm-hmm. They fought World War II. Uh, they came off active duty. They, they maintained their, their commission or if they were sergeants, you know, their NCO rank as reservists. And they, they believe that, that they would be that they would be ready to be called up for the big one for World War III to go fight the Soviets, uh, and this included you know Air Force pilots and, and Navy uh, Navy personnel, and instead they get called up to go to the Far East to Korea, where you know what what's in Korea we we don't know we just know it rhymes with gonorrhea, and you want to avoid both of those. <laughs> uh, so there there was very little uh, enthusiasm 
uh, on the part of these reservists who are being called up to then go fight fight this, you know, not World War Three war, which of course is what Truman wants. Truman does not want to fight World War Three, um, so so there's a disparity there. And then you get to what many historians call the stalemate phase when the negotiations begin in uh, June or July of 1951. And there was this expectation that six weeks, eight weeks, you know, we'll have it wrapped up and then, and then we'll be, uh, we'll be going home. Uh, of course that's, you know, six weeks, eight weeks turns into 24 months. Uh, that, which was something that nobody, nobody really expected. Uh, but you get into the fall of 1951 and there's a sense of, um, you know, on the part of the GI, you know, that private, that corporal who had been who'd been drafted uh, not to go fight the Soviets, but to go fight this war in Korea. Uh, why should I be the last man to die in a war that's going to be settled by a ceasefire? Mm-hmm. And so there becomes this great reluctance to, to really, you know, go all out and, and give it your all if you know, I capture this hill and then we're going to give it back because by the terms of the armistice, you know, the, the, the demarcation line's already been made. And so why am I attacking? Why am I willing to risk my life to attack ground that I'm going to have to give back uh, to the enemy at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. And then this, and so this compounds then with the army overall worldwide has a manpower shortage mm-hmm. because while we're fighting in Korea, we're also rearming to fight in Europe. And uh, it's actually about a 60-40 split. 40% of troops mobilized go to Korea. 60% go to Europe. So Korea is is constantly on this uh, kind of the short end of, of manpower. Uh, so the Army and, and the Far East Command that Ridgeway is now in charge of uh, decides to do a rotation where a soldier who, who earns 36 points will rotate out of theater and, and go home, basically. And you earn points by your proximity to uh, the fighting. So if you're at the infantry battalion, company, or platoon, you're earning four points a month. So in nine months, you're, you're ready to leave. So imagine that infantry soldier who's been in country for eight months and 25 days. And now he's being told, you're going to go attack that Chinese defensive position. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, no. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll act like I am. Right. I'll be a good college try, but, but not really. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this, this idea also infects, you know, the officers, you know, the lieutenants and the captains and you know, the majors. You know, they don't want to send a man forward in a risky operation who's supposed to go home in the next couple of days. Uh, General James Van Fleet, who takes over for Ridgeway uh, as the Eighth Army commander, recognizes you know what what this is doing to to the Eighth Army that had been a very uh, tightly strung, a very competent, probably the most competent field army uh, that that the United States had had, had put to war uh, up until that time uh, is now be, is now losing that combat edge because uh, of these policies. Where a soldier, if a soldier lasts nine months in combat, he's probably picked up a lot of tricks of the trade. Mm-hmm. And it would be very useful to promote that soldier 
you know, and, and use him to train others. But nope, he's he's gone. He's he's going back to the United States. He's going to demobilize, and and he's out. So by the fall of 52, 1952, Van Fleet literally has an army that has, you know, turned over two or three times. Hmm. And uh, he has a lot of uh, lieutenants who are commanding companies, and usually a captain commands a company. Uh, he's got, uh, you know, majors who are commanding battalions, and usually a lieutenant colonel commands a battalion. And on occasion, there's a lieutenant colonel commanding a regiment, where a colonel would normally do that. So you're also experiencing a, a just a decrease in experience and judgment at increasingly higher levels. All of this combines to uh, a less aggressive army, uh, a less competent army, and a, an army that's going to take more casualties conducting riskier missions at the very time where you're trying to minimize casualties. And so yet another dichotomy that, that really um, kind of puts a bitter taste in the mouth of, of the veterans who are fighting uh, this war in, in late 52 and early 53. And um, were the Chinese and North Koreans, were they having these same kind of morale issues or was it more a fight for, you know, the homeland kind of thing? Yeah, really, really good question. Um, unfortunately, you know, North Korea really is kind of a closed book to Western scholars. We, we, we don't know uh, a, whole, a whole lot of, of what animated them. Uh, other than um, pretty universally American officers and soldiers who say, if you have to fight the Chinese or the North Koreans, better to fight the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese will actually surrender if, if the situation's hopeless. Uh, the North Koreans will fight to the death. Uh, so the, I would say, you know, the North Koreans were, were ideologically very committed. Uh, a lot of them had extensive combat experience, either as partisans, as guerrillas. Um, a lot of them fought in the Chinese Civil War on the side of the communists, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons why the North Koreans did so well early in the war against the South Korean army and, and the initial American intervention. Uh, these guys were committed and they were good. They were they were competent, um, very reluctant to surrender. And at, you know, after 1950, 1950, the North Koreans are really not they are not in an, in an offensive posture. The North Koreans are fighting defensively, uh, which tactically is a much simpler simpler problem. Uh, and, and they do and they fight very well. Uh, the Chinese, on the other hand. It's kind of a mixed bag uh, because Mao Zedong is um, he's relying on his veterans from the Civil War. But at the same time, he doesn't want to lose all his veterans of the Civil War. So he, he actually commits um, several divisions full of former Chinese nationalist soldiers who had fought against the communists. But at some point in that conflict, they had switched sides and, and everything was was good. Uh, these soldiers in in the main are the ones who end up surrendering to the Americans uh, much more quickly and then are the ones who are refusing uh, to be uh, repatriated. Uh, so by the time you get to the stalemate period, the Chinese recognize that, that this is a weakness for them. And they undergo a very significant uh, strategic and tactical revolution uh, to be able to fight the Americans uh, on a more even plane in terms of firepower. Uh, they get a lot of artillery. They even get some tanks. They, they don't use their tanks as tanks. They use them mostly as kind of mobile artillery. 
but other weaponry from the Soviets to include aircraft. And uh, they changed their doctrine to how they were going to fight. Instead of this kind of um, guerrilla, you know, this, this very fluid guerrilla attack the flanks and infiltration, which they realize is really dangerous if your enemy, you know, is alert and, and has greater mobility than you, uh, to this tactic that's called Nupitang, which I'm probably mispronouncing for anyone who knows Chinese. But Nupitang is a candy from the Hunan province where Mao is from. It's, it's very sticky and it's very tough. And so to, to eat this candy, you, you just got to chew and chew and chew and chew and bite and, and swallow. And so the Chinese invent these tactics that are this, we're just going to chew and chew and chew and chew on uh, these American positions until we can swallow them and then we'll move on. Hmm. And once uh, the Chinese become more proficient and they get more artillery, uh, this turns every battle with the Chinese into a, a more problematic situation. And this is what the Americans run into in October 1952, uh, attacking Chinese fortifications. Uh, and the Chinese have spent a lot of time digging, bore, boring through the living rock, miles and miles of tunnels to protect them from the bombs and the artillery and the rockets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would use these tunnels, you know, they would hide in these tunnels by day and the Americans would show up and, and radio back. Okay. We've secured the objective. And then at night, the Chinese would come out of these tunnels and all of a sudden the Americans are in this knife fight, you know, at five, five feet, 15 feet. And with all these Chinese, like, who are these guys? Where do they come from? And then the Chinese would then retreat back into these tunnels. Uh, and they call this the seesaw battle. Just, just going back and forth, and they would just do this constantly, and the Chinese had the manpower to do that. The Americans don't. We're trying to reduce casualties. We're trying to economize uh, the lives of, of our soldiers, and we, we just can't we just can't engage in this attritional struggle at the tactical level. I'm speaking with Brian Gibby, author of Korean Showdown. You can find more information about his work at the University of Alabama Press website. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. So I was going to ask about the uh, the air war. It sounds like air power would not be very effective in this kind of um, operation or these kind of battles. Yeah, uh, you know, and this is complicated by. Um, the disparity or, or the inability of airmen and soldiers to look at the battlefield in the same way. And this goes all the way back to, to World War II, uh, when the Air Force is, is the United States Army Air Corps, and then the United States Army Air Forces. So you have soldiers on the ground and soldiers in the air, and, and they just don't see um, the war even in, in the same terms. And then once the Air Force becomes an independent service in 1947 and they get their own four-star general on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, they become really 
um, parochial in, in, in that the Air Force wants to fight their war. And it's very interesting that uh, MacArthur's first commander, a guy named George Stratemeyer, uh, who had extensive experience in, in China and in, uh, India and in Burma in that theater in World War II, uh, his, his memoirs are called, <laughs> they're called The Three Wars of, of George Stratemeyer. And the three war, you're thinking, okay, World War One, World War II, Korea. No, the three wars are against the bureaucrats in Washington, against the Marine Corps, and against the Army. Hmm. I'm, I'm being a little bit unfair, you know, in that, but um, that, that's always in the back of the mind of, of the airmen is, is uh, is the army going to take over our stuff? And if they're not, and if we can resist the army taking over our, our stuff, are we going to have to perform missions for the army, close air support, principally, which is is not very fun, and is downright dangerous for a pilot flying a, a half million dollar aircraft uh, to to drive himself, you know, into the guns of the enemy with the hope that his bomb is going to destroy the tank or the mortar or, or the, the fighting position. Uh, what the Air Force really wants to do is what they did in World War II, a strategic bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they want to use that as the principal strategy to, uh, to defeat the North Koreans and end the war. Mm-hmm. The problem is between July and August, the strategic bombing forces destroy every target that, that there is. There's nothing left to bomb after September 1950. And the North Koreans haven't given up. Hmm. And then when the Chinese enter the war, well, you can't bomb Manchuria and you can't bomb the Soviet Union. And that's where all the stuff's getting made. So, you know, this idea of we're going to use strategic bombing to win falls falls flat pretty quickly. Uh, So you get to mid-1951 and the airmen say, aha, we got it. We're, we're going to do battlefield interdiction. So there's close air support, which is, you know, we're going to attack targets that are in contact with our own forces. And then there's strategic bombing is we're going to bomb stuff that's way in the rear. Mm-hmm. Uh, battlefield interdiction is that middle, that middle place where the Army is not going to tell us what to do because it's too far away. Mm-hmm. We can fight our own war. And it's going to be all in Korea, so we don't have to worry about violating, you know, Chinese airspace or, or the Soviets. And the idea is by bombing bridges, railroads, and road and roadways and trucks, we can starve the communist armies. And if we do it right, we can starve them so badly that they'll just give up because they can't sustain their forces in the field. Mm-hmm. Those airmen who kind of had the, the, the most optimistic view, that, that was their position. Uh, more realistic views were we can, we can prevent the communists from building up enough supplies to prevent them from launching another offensive, hmm. which is guys like Ridgeway is like, okay, that, that's good. You know, that, if, we can, if we can keep the enemy from attacking us, uh, that's nice. So the Air Force for the next for the next two years, you know, they, they prosecute uh, four different interdiction campaigns, which gives you a sense of how successful they are if they have to do, they have to do four of them. Um, and at one point, Ridgeway is kind of sarcastic, says, well, it looks like you've destroyed every truck in Asia, but the communists are still shooting artillery shells at us. <laughs> What's going on? Um, so, you know, the, Ridgeway is kind of in a bind because 
uh, once negotiations start, he can't he can't authorize these massive ground offensives. So the only tool that he really has is, is air power. And um, you know they they God bless them. They do the very best they can. Uh, you know there is no way you can fault uh, their courage or their endurance to really tackle some very tough missions. Uh, there, there's one uh, incident that I recount in the book of trying to attack what they called the rubber bridge because it's, it's this bridge over the Yalu River just seemed, every time you hit it, it just would not fall. Uh, so the airmen said, it, yeah, it must be made of rubber because it, it, it just won't go down. And, and then there are, there's a couple of incidents that are, are really quite tragic because, you know, the Air Force, it just doesn't, the technology's not there. Hmm. They can't fly at night in the way that we can fly at night today. Mm-hmm. Uh, they try to. And in fact, uh, General Van Fleet, who's the 8th Army commander, uh, his son uh, is killed on his very first night interdiction mission. Uh, we're not sure what happened to him, but we think that he drove his plane into a mountain. That, that seems to be the only thing that, that, we, can, uh, that we can really piece together. Uh, so the technology is not there. Um, you can't drop and you just can't drop enough bombs, uh, conventional bombs. Mm-hmm. You can't drop enough conventional bombs to completely uh, destroy a roadway or to completely destroy a um, railroad. Uh, you you got to go after it day after day. And this const, you have to have constant coverage, which you know you just you just can't do. You, you burn out your. Uh, so that's what the Air Force is is up against. Uh, but like I said, you know, they, they give it their best shot and there's there's no uh, lack of imagination to to, you know, try to use air power as this coercive tool because mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can't use ground power. And it's not till um, mid 52 uh, that the Air Force pretty much recognizes, hey, you know what, we, we, we kind of sold the army a bill of goods. Uh, that interdiction was going to be the silver bullet, and it's not. So let's, let's just admit that it's not going to work, and let's go do what we want to do anyway, which is blow up, you know, really cool stuff that's going to increase the pain on the communists. And at this point, General Mark Clark is the commander of the Far East Command. So he took Ridgeway's place. He's in Tokyo. And he approves uh, an operation at the end of June uh, that will attack and destroy five hydroelectric uh, dam facilities in northern Korea and along the Yalu River. That these have been off limits for a long time because of the risk of American planes going into China um, or you know blowing up blowing up dams. You know those are civilian infrastructure. It, it, it wouldn't look good. Uh, but by the summer of 1952, we're kind of getting a little frustrated. So General Clark is willing to to take the gloves off, and and they launched this assault, which is um, you know, one historian calls it the the most spectacular airstrike of the war. Uh, we destroy all five of these hydroelectric facilities, and it basically turns the lights off in Manchuria and uh, brings industrial. What what little industry is still operating in North Korea just grinds to a halt because they don't have any electricity. They have no power. Uh, so the airmen are like, yeah, this, you know, this is what we're supposed to be doing, really putting the pain to the communists. Uh, unfortunately, politically, it's a disaster. Mm. Uh, the British are very upset uh, that we took this measure without consulting with them, which points to one of the problems of you know fighting in a coalition mm-hmm. is just.
just because you're the strongest member of the coalition doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. You, you have to take into account um, your allies because the British are on the Security Council. They're in the UN. They have you know just as much clout as, as the Americans do. Uh, they're upset. The French are upset. Uh, some of our Asian allies are are a little bit dismayed. Like you know, you're supposed to be negotiating peace, and and here you are wiping out you know, this very valuable uh, civilian infrastructure. And by the way, uh, you really embarrass the Chinese. And so if you think the Chinese are going to agree to your conditions after they've been so embarrassed, you know, that's not going to happen. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like, okay, we got to go back to the drawing board because although it was, from a military standpoint, very effective, politically and strategically, it really didn't do much. Um, should I even ask what the Navy... Uh contributed uh to what to what you discuss in the book the operation sure so i I don't deal with the navy um very much but i I, you do need to acknowledge their contribution that um you know the the naval forces control the oceans and korea is a peninsula and so if you can control the oceans you've got a lot of flexibility uh to do so Uh, we're, we're never worried about running out of supplies you know, we're always we're always going to get uh, the food, the ammunition, you know, the manpower that we need because we control uh, the waters. Uh, the Navy also uh, contributes uh, pretty significant air power as well. Uh, the problem from 1950 to 1951 is the Navy, uh, you know, they want to fight their war. So they, they agree to this interdiction plan, but they tell the Air Force, don't, you know, we'll, we'll do our own interdiction. Uh, and for the airmen, this, this is, this is heresy. Air power is supposed to be indivisible, uh, meaning it needs to be centralized. It needs to be applied to a, a very strategic object. And if the Navy is doing its own thing and, you know, even worse, the Marine Corps, you know, this is, this is not going to work. Uh, but in, in the operation that I talked about in June, uh, 1952, the attack on the hydroelectric dams, uh, the Navy had agreed uh, in the spring of 52 to join what they were calling the JOC, the JOC, the Joint Operations Center, mm-hmm. which uh, allowed the airmen now to kind of have this centralized control, and, and the Navy was going to was going to play ball with this joint, uh, mm-hmm. this joint center. So the Navy, uh, it, it, and it's a good thing they they were there because. Uh, the Navy knows how to bring very heavy bombs uh, in low against a target that's up against water, hmm. which is what a dam is. And so the Navy brings in their uh, A-1 Sky Raiders. Uh, they, they can carry a tremendous amount of bombs and rockets, and, and they really just hammer hammer those dams. Hmm. Uh, so you, know, you could say w- without the Naval contribution, uh, the strike probably would not have been as effective because the Air Force would have been trying to destroy the dam from above. You know, very hard target to hit. But if you're coming at it, you know, from the side, mm-hmm. much more likely to be successful. Yeah, it seems, you know, with the Navy, it's like their their success is so uh, complete in a sense that it's like they're taken for granted and it, they're almost invisible. But like you say, that yeah. there was no question about them controlling the waters, you know. Right. 
And so no one talks about it. Like, okay, they got that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's not going to be a Chinese Navy, you know, and, and, and the Air Force is kind of the same way. Hmm. Um, you know, very, very, very few American soldiers die because of enemy air attack. There's a couple, hmm. okay? But in the main, American soldiers are not worried about being attacked from above, which is a, is a huge advantage. Well, let me um, let let me turn to the uh, resources you used um, for for your research. Um, can you touch on that? What what archives you used? Um... Sure. Uh, so you know any any research that is going to involve uh, the American military, you, you got to go to the National Archives and Records Administration in College Park, uh, Maryland, and uh, they they have all of the official um, reports, operations orders, after action reviews. Um, any official documents, letters, you know, between general officers, uh, which, by the way, you know, as a historian, I don't know what they're going to do 100 years from now when everything's done over email and PowerPoint. You know, the sources just aren't going to be there. Uh, but there's, you know, rich, rich materials uh, to be found, uh, especially uh, like for Showdown, the, the correspondence between uh, Mark Clark, who writes a letter to Van Fleet, basically saying, hey, what's the deal? How come we haven't won, and why have you suffered so many casualties? And then Van Fleet, in writing, has to justify what, what's going on, and, and that back and forth is very uh, very illuminating. So the, the National Archives and Records has all those official documents um, to include uh, the policy from the Joint Chiefs and uh, sec the um, – uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, those, those kinds of records. And that gives you a very good broad outline. Mm -hmm. But to get down to kind of the granularity of the generals and, and the airmen them, themselves, uh, you got to be a little bit more inquisitive. Uh, and so for the Army, you can go to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the Army Heritage and Education Center, uh, where many officers and and soldiers have deposited their personal papers, mm -hmm. uh, which sometimes are actually official correspondence, which is which is very useful. Uh, but many times it's, you know, letters home, for example, uh, can be found there. So General William Harrison, who is the chief negotiator for the United Nations Command for the Americans uh, in September, in July, July, August, September 1952, is writing to his family, to his children, and telling them, uh, basically, you know, what a bunch of scumbags the communists are. And he's very eloquent <laughs> and uses really good language that communicates his frustrations uh, very well. And so you, you, you kind of get the sense of, all right, if it was this bad for him trying to negotiate with his opposite numbers, you know, how does that translate to General Van Fleet, to General Clark, and then and then back to Washington? Uh, and then there's, there's other... Um, like memoirs, unpublished memoirs, and, and other materials, oral histories mm -hmm. uh, that are deposited at the uh, at the Army Heritage and Education Center. Mm -hmm. uh, the Air Force has a similar repository at Maxwell Air Force Base uh, in Alabama, uh, which uh, I found to be not as useful uh, because it's not as well organized, especially for the mm -hmm. Korean War period. Um, I guess they just haven't had you know a lot of uh, scholars trying to, to dig into those materials. Um, but that archive did have uh, digitized 
uh, several of the studies that were published either while the war was going on or after the war uh, that are very similar to kind of a RAND, you know, analytical reports. Mm -hmm. So I was able to to kind of get this uh, semi-official narrative about how the Air Force uh, was fighting. For General Clark, he deposited his papers at the Citadel Archives and Museum in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, and that's that's a really uh, good uh, repository, not only for his materials, but for the United Nations Command, because uh, there, there's no there's no United Nations Command archive. Right? If you want to see United Nations Command materials, you got to go to Korea uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but uh, Mark Clark was the president of the Citadel uh, up until he uh, until he died, I think, in the early 80s, mm-hmm. and so he left all of his his materials there. And then there's some other officers associated with him, like uh, General Michael O'Daniel, also known as Iron Mike, uh, deposited his papers uh, there. He was one of the core commanders uh, during this period of time. Uh, other places that you know that I looked at here, here at West Point in their special collections archives, they had some materials, um, presidential archives, Harry S. Truman in Independence, Missouri, and Dwight Eisenhower in uh, Abilene, Kansas, also had materials. Uh, fortunately, the things that I wanted to look at were digitized or online, and so that was uh, that was really useful. And then the last place uh, that you can find good sources is at the Center of Military History, which is in Washington, D.C. Uh, they don't keep they don't keep records per se, uh, but they do keep historical reports and and um, um, kind of resumes of, of various operations that official historians uh, were, were charged with writing either at the time that they occurred. Uh, for example, in the documentation I used to talk about Heartbreak Ridge is derived uh, substantially from a report that was written very soon after the battle. Or a couple years later, they kind of look at, you know, what were some of the problems the Army had? Let's get a couple historians to look into that. What was the uh, most surprising thing you came across in your research? Uh, Operation Ever Ready, uh, which was a plan for the United States Army to take over the government of South Korea. Hmm. <laughs> That's, uh, how deeply did they get into planning for that? <laughs> so the, the, the story behind this is when the Republic of Korea was founded in 1948, uh, Sigmund Rhee uh, was elected president. And Sigmund Rhee is, uh, he's, he's a very valuable character in Korean history. Um, he, he basically looked at himself as a combination of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson uh, in terms of what he meant to, to his country. Uh, he was brutally tortured by the Japanese in the late 19th century. He was uh, abused by, by Koreans who, who you know, didn't like his ideas of, of, of nationhood and and independence. Uh, he eventually um, comes to the United States, gets a couple of uh, graduate degrees. Uh, he meets President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he raises money out in California and Hawaii to help the cause of Korean independence prior to, to World War II. And then, and then, you know, in 1945, Korea is liberated, and Sigmund Rhee basically says, okay, I'm ready to go home and take over. And the United States is Nah, we're not we're not too sure about that. You know, if you're really if you're really the guy that we want, but he, you know, it was his his 
his credentials as a nationalist uh, were were impeccable. Uh, besides the fact that he lived overseas, so he didn't live in Korea under Japanese occupation, but he was a household name. Everybody knew who Sigmund Rhee was. So in 1948, he's he's kind of the father of the country. He's he's elected president. Uh, but curiously enough, the the Republic of Korea, the ROC, as I say, uh, their constitution, the president was elected by the assembly, the National Assembly. So it's as if the House of Representatives voted for who the president would be. So he's elected in 1948. Uh, in 1950 are the midterm elections, and a lot of his allies in the National Assembly get voted out. And this is before the war begins. This is May of 1950. So you get a lot of independent um, legislators who don't really like Sigmund Rhee's brand of politics, which which run towards the authoritarian side. Two years later, 1952, his four-year term is up. Time for him to be reelected. Well, Sigmund Rhee's not a fool, and he realizes that if the National Assembly is going to elect the president, he's not going to get reelected. So he comes up with a great idea. We're going to change the Constitution to allow the president to be elected by direct vote by the people of South Korea. Mm. That's the matter. Right? The National Assembly refuses to entertain the idea to change the Constitution. So Sigmund says, okay, fine. You're all under arrest. So Sigmund Rhee gets his, he, he gets what the ambassador to uh, Korea, John Mucho, called the goon squads to go in and arrest these recalcitrant assemblymen who are opposed to Sigmund Rhee. Mm -hmm. And if they can't arrest them, they beat them up, you know, they beat up their supporters. Uh, and this is in the city of Pusan. Pusan is the wartime seat of government for the South Koreans. Uh, Pusan is also the main port of where all the supplies are going in, right? So the last thing the Americans want is, is Pusan, you know, on fire like a dumpster. Mm -hmm. So it gets, to, it gets to this point where uh, the Americans are really in a bind. Do we support this, this authoritarian figure who is perpetrating a coup by throwing in jail all of the National Assembly who won't change the Constitution the way he wants it changed, while at the same time we're claiming that we're preserving democracy and, and liberal government in South Korea with all of our allies, right? So General Mark Clark uh, devises this plan called Ever Ready uh, that the, the premise of the plan was if it looks like Sigmund Rhee is going to go through with, with this you know, uh, extra constitutional process to make himself president, yeah, uh, we would find a way, the Americans would find a way to get uh, Sigmund Rhee out of out of town. Get him up to Seoul. Send, tell him that you know General Ridgeway wants to meet him or whatever. Get him out of out of Pusan. Then we would use loyal Korean army units to kind of converge on Pusan and uh, and suppress you know these uh, youth groups and you know the goon squads that that John Mucho was talking about mm -hmm. and, and arrest all of Sigmund Rhee's guys. And then once that was done. Uh, in Seoul, uh, Van Fleet or Ridgeway or whoever it was would basically tell Sigmund Rhee, "Oh, by the way, all your guys have been arrested, and you need you need to abdicate. You know, you need to resign and appoint somebody else to be 
to be president. This plan did not have a lot of uh, support from Clark's subordinates, especially General Van Fleet. Uh, Van Fleet was, was very much pro-Korean and had spent a lot of time conditioning Korean soldiers to not be involved in politics. Mm-hmm. So the last thing Van Fleet wants to do is, is tell his Korean guys, hey, I need you to take over the government. You know, even though we've been talking about professionalism and you know, nonpartisan and, and being apolitical. Uh, fortunately, uh, after a lot of uh, back and forth and, you know, Truman gets involved and, and such, um, President Rhee agrees that, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find a way. And uh, miraculously, the National Assembly changes the Constitution and uh, President Rhee stands for, you know, a direct vote. And he, he wins something like 96% or, or something like that, you know, an insanely large margin. And uh, the crisis is over and, and everybody's happy. Hmm. Uh, but Plan Ever Ready uh, stays on the books because in 1953, <laughs> it looks like we might really have to do it because President Rhee is, is very much against signing an armistice. And, and we, we come we come pretty close to removing him from the political scene so we can get an armistice. Hmm. What was the uh, was there a question that was particularly difficult for you to get an answer for that you're still wondering about or maybe you did figure out the answer, but it took a while? C- kind of the I, I think it, it kind of revolves around the, the the what if of, you know, President Truman decides not to run for reelection. In 1952, uh, in January of 52, his his approval rating is it's it's like 22 percent. It, it it's you know it's more abundant, and he decides to uh, to step aside and and he he promotes uh, a gentleman named Ally Stevenson uh, to run uh, for the Democrat Party. Uh, he had approached Dwight Eisenhower because Eisenhower was fairly well known as being a, a nonpartisan figure. Uh, so he approaches Eisenhower, uh, who's president of Columbia University at the time, and 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 tries to recruit him to uh, to run as a Democrat. And, I, and Eisenhower uh, shrewdly turns him down. But Eisenhower doesn't tell the full story, uh, which is, um, and I don't know how much of this is really true and how much is really justification. But uh, Ike's view was it's probably time that another political party take the lead of, of the American government. And, and that's one of the reasons why Eisenhower accepts the Republican nomination. He also wanted to keep it out of the hands of, of what was still a fairly hard core of isolationists, because Eisenhower does recognize that, you know, we need allies, we need NATO, and we can't take on the Soviets by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So he, he, runs, he runs for president and runs a, a very shrewd campaign. It's uh, called, it's shorthand as KC squared, Korea, communism and corruption, which uh, is might have been like dirty pool because Eisenhower is kind of one of those guys who he, he kind of knows where all the bodies are buried because he's, he's been involved, um, you know, at the high at the highest reaches of, of the military side of the government for so long. Mm-hmm. But he, he runs on this this sense of, you know, it's time for a change and, and Korea is not going so well. Well, this really disturbs Truman, obviously, but 
Dean Acheson is very concerned um, that Eisenhower either will will articulate before the election a different policy uh, when it comes to the repatriation of POWs, or people will suspect that he will articulate a different policy, in which case the communists might just be encouraged to, to kind of wait it out hmm. and, and see what happens. Uh, fortunately, Eisenhower assures assures Atchison, no, you know, well, I intend to follow the president's policy. But that's not, it's, it's not a, a sure thing. People are still kind of wondering. In late October, Eisenhower gives a speech, uh, I think it's in, in Michigan, and he, he's, he promises, if I'm elected, I will go to Korea. You know, everyone's cheering. Great, great. What they heard was, if I'm elected, I will solve the Korean problem. Mm-hmm. That's not what he said. He said, I will go to Korea. <laughs> and so he gets elected, and sure enough, you know, early December, he gets on a plane and flies to Korea. So here's kind of kind of the what if. Uh, when he gets to Korea, Mark Clark and James Van Fleet, who who were who had both worked for Eisenhower during World War II, uh, Van Fleet and Eisenhower were classmates at West Point. They they knew each other very well. Mm-hmm. And Mark Clark had a plan. It was called uh, Operations Plan Eight Fifty Two or Op Plan Eight Five Two. That was kind of this, hey, you know, let's, let's, let's try to win the war. All this negotiation stuff and, and, you know, interdiction and limited attack is not working. Let's, let's really put the pain on the communists and, and we can do it. Because right? Eisenhower, you know, <laughs> if anyone can do it, he can do it. And so they, they want to pitch this plan to Eisenhower, who, like I said, shrewd, Eisenhower was a shrewd man. He, he knew that this was coming. Uh, and, and the plan is, is uh, it's, it's horrible. I, I call it worse than a MacArthur do-over hmm. because it does not take into account at all uh, the strategic and policy issues that have really framed the Korean War for the previous three years, two and a half years. You, know, you just can't, you just can't act like they're not, they're not there and, you know, and just bull on through and think you're going to win the war. Um, so it, it, it's a, it's a horrible plan. It looks it looks good for military men because you know we're going to get more more troops, more planes. Uh, we don't need atomic bombs, but you know maybe if we had 500, you know, stashed away on Guam, that might not be a bad idea. Well, yeah, because you know as soon as you try to attack to the Yalu River, you know the the, the hordes of China are going to come at you, so you better be able to to fight them off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Eisenhower. Uh, very astutely avoids having that conversation with Clark and Van Fleet. Hmm. Uh, instead, he gets a briefing with a Korean general called Park Sun Yup, and Park Sun Yup is—he's—he's he's the Americans' favorite Korean. He speaks marvelous English. Uh, he served in—in in, uh, not the Japanese army, but kind of the Japanese surrogate army in Manchuria during the war, fighting communist guerrillas. So he understands Chinese too, and uh, he was—he just kind of had this natural sense of professionalism and confidence. So he's very, very much trusted by the Americans. Uh, he's the chief of staff of the Korean Army, and he gets uh, a couple hours with Eisenhower and basically explains to Eisenhower, "Look, we appreciate everything the United States has done for us." 
but we recognize that what it costs you to to mobilize, train, and and deploy a soldier for one year, I can, meaning the Koreans, I can recruit, train, and maintain in the field indefinitely three Koreans. So in other words, let us Koreans fight this war. Okay, you give us the money and kind of the political coverage to do so. This is a very attractive proposition to Eisenhower. He does want to end the war, but he, he, he's, he, no one has really told him how to do it right? until Pak Sun Yuk tells him how to do it. Hmm. So when Eisenhower goes back uh, to the United States and then eventually is inaugurated, uh, you see the American strategy shift from this, this, uh, uh, combat operations, we're going to, you know, give the enemy a bloody nose to, we're going to make the rock army, the Korean army, bigger and better and meaner. Hmm. And this process had been going on already since the summer of 1951. And this is the subject of my first book is, you know, how the Americans uh, raise and train this army. But it's not really until Eisenhower gets into office that, you know, we're, we're going to open up the spigot and, and we're going to provide uh, the money to support a much larger Korean army. So what you end up seeing in January of 53, and this, this is kind of beyond the scope of, of Korean showdown, but it, it, it would be, it would be like the third book, you know, if I was doing, doing the, the last part of the war. Uh, the Korean army is, uh, occupies uh, over 60% of the front line, uh, conducts over 60% of the patrols and attacks is inflicting somewhere around 70% of all enemy casualties that we can assess uh, on the ground, not, not including artillery and, and air power. And is suffering over 50% of all the casualties. So in other words, they're fighting the war. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, we, we can, now, now the Americans can start pulling back. And, and I believe that this really has a, a profound effect on the communists who they think that they're tying up the Americans, you know, in, in this backwater conflict in Korea. Mm-hmm. But as the Koreans are becoming more effective and are doing more of the fighting, the, the map doesn't add up anymore. It's not, for the Chinese, it's not worth it to kill a Korean. Hmm. It's worth it if they can kill an American. Huh, interesting. So, so I guess that unanswered question is, you know, what, what if Eisenhower had had said to Clark, okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's try moving to the Yalu again. And I think that would have been um, strategically, you know, very tragic. Uh, so apart from uh, filling the historical gaps, what do you hope uh, the book will do for readers? I, I hope that uh, the reader takes away, number one, uh, a very simple thought, and that is policy matters. And so when we talk about military um, operations, this is especially today, uh, military strategy, tactics, operations, that, that's what gets everyone real excited to, to discuss and, and to debate. But at the end of the day, if the policy is not clear, then your strategy is going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. And if you have an unclear policy and, and or a, pro, a problematic strategy, 
operations and tactics are, are not going to produce the effect that you want to produce. And so for the Americans in Korea, it, it, takes, it takes a long time to get to, the, to that final policy of, of uh, we call it voluntary repatriation. It's February 1952. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the decision to negotiate a settlement is arrived at in Washington around January of 51. So from January of 51 to February of 52, it's 13 months. It takes the American government to figure out what are we fighting for? And you know, if it had been if it had been clear in June or July of '51 that this was going to be the stance that we were going to take, you know, the, the progress of negotiations would have been much different. Because by the time you get to February of '52, we've already decided on a on a boundary, a demarcation line. So any attack that that we make beyond that line, we're going to have to give that land back. So if you've already decided that the enemy has a sanctuary, yeah. you know, how, yeah. how, how do you, how do you use military means to, um, to kind of raise, raise the bar? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really the lesson. And when you look at, you know, our recent history in the wars of Afghanistan and Iraq, um, if, if you're struggling to, to understand the strategy and the operations, ask yourself, do you understand the policy? Mm -hmm. yeah. And if the policy is unclear, then that, that probably is the source of, of frustration. Did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, finished or published? No, it, it, it just took time. Um, you know, what I tell anyone who will listen is, is if you spend an hour a day, you will finish your book. Mm. <laughs> you got to have that, that time, time to do so. I, I've been very fortunate in working with the University of Alabama Press. You know, they published both of my books. Um, and I think the hardest part, the hardest part was probably uh, on their end to find uh, disinterested reviewers hmm. uh, could, could read the manuscript and provide substantive uh, feedback. And I've been very fortunate that, you know, for both books, they were able to find four different um, Korean War scholars uh, with, with, you know, with the knowledge base with enough of a knowledge base, because not necessarily exactly what I was talking about, mm -hmm. but enough knowledge base to, to let me know where um, I might have gotten my facts wrong. Uh, I might have, you know, uh, extended my interpretation of the facts a little bit too far, in, in which case, you know, my conclusions are not necessarily uh, justified or that there might be other sources that, that I need to consult. What's your uh, next writing project or your current one? Uh, so I guess I, I like peninsulas that have a lot of mountains on it because huh. uh, I've, I've now turned to Italy, uh, principally the 1944 campaign, uh, allied campaign against Anzio Beach mm -hmm. and Casino. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so far, you know, the, and I, and I like this, I like this idea because, you know, it's not another D-Day book. It's not another market garden book. You know, all that stuff's been written. Uh, the Italian campaign it was a sideshow. Well, uh, for the Americans, it was a sideshow. For Great Britain, it, it was like the main event. But for the Americans, it was a sideshow. And so historians have tended to treat it as a sideshow. And so there's, there's relatively less that's been written about it. Uh, it's also very interesting because uh, Anzio is an amphibious operation. Uh, Casino is a frontal attack against a mountain fortress. Mm-hmm. 
and most uh, historical studies talk about one or the other. There's books about Casino, there's books about Anzi. Uh, these books will of necessity make reference to the other battle, but nobody has really integrated that narrative. Hmm. From the German standpoint, it was one battle. It, it was very, it was an integrated battle from the very beginning. So what I what I'm trying to, to look at is uh, looking at both both battles in a single campaign, and the the, the uh, subtitle to the book is going to be called "A Failure of Allied Command." Hmm. Okay. Italy is the theater itself. Italy is commanded by a British officer uh, named Harold Alexander, and his principal subordinate is wait for it. General Mark Clark, hmm. who goes on to, to Korea. And General Mark Clark uh, has not commanded at the Army, the Corps, the Division, or the regimental levels ever. Hmm. He briefly commanded a battalion uh, in France in World War I and was wounded on, his, on practically his first day of, of operations. The, so his experience base is, is very low. And he, he is he's over subordinates, American subordinates, who in some cases are many years his senior, and who, for example, you know, taught him at the war college. You know, he was the student, and now now he's the army commander. Hmm. Uh, General Clark also doesn't doesn't really like Englishmen all that much, and part of his army is a corps, the Tenth Corps, which is all British. And uh, so, you know, my, my intent behind the book was I, I thought I was going to rehabilitate Clark's image because there, there's some, con you know, there's a lot of controversy. The 36th Infantry Division, Texas National Guard, uh, pretty much gets itself wiped out at the Rapido River. Clark, or Clark ordered that attack. Uh, the bombing of the monastery at Monte Cassino, Clark ordered that attack. Uh, so, you know, there's, 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 there's some stink on him, but but I thought based on what he did in Korea, I said, okay, there's got to be more to the story. Mm -hmm. It turns out the failure of Allied command is that you had the British at the top, Alexander. You had the American in the middle, Mark Clark, and then at Anzio, you have an American corps commander who has both American and British divisions working for him. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the Americans and, and the British were two people separated by a common language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's very it's very hard, right, to do that. And like I said, Mark Clark uh, is very distrustful of the British, and in, in, in his own in his own diaries, you know, he he's constantly worried that somehow the British are going to cheat him out of the honor of capturing Rome. Hmm. That was very important to him, <laughs> and, and for understandable reasons. President Roosevelt told him, "I want you to capture Rome." Okay, <laughs> Roger, sir, I got it. <laughs> I'll capture Rome. And so th there comes a point, the, cr the, the, the critical point of the battle, Clark, in, in, my, in my professional view, makes a very bad decision. And, and that bad decision undermines the Allied plan. Clark captures Rome, but it, it was at great expense to what could have, could have been possible. So that, that's kind of the, the crux there is... You know, why did that operation not uh, live up to its potential? That it could have. 
So um, is there anywhere people can find you on the web to follow your thoughts, social media or website? Uh, so remember I told you I'm a military intelligence yeah. officer. Yeah. So my online presence is actually uh, quite, quite low, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, unfortunate, but I guess that's just kind of how I, how I grew up. So I guess people can go to the um, University of Alabama Press uh, website to get information yeah. on your books. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know if they if they did Google my name Brian Gibby, you know Brian spell with a Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's two of us. Uh, there's one in Idaho who's a doctor, and then there's you know the colonel who's uh, at West Point. Um, but uh, you know you, you can you can see, and then also a good plug for for the West Point Department of History. You know the much of the history we teach was made by people we taught, mm-hmm. and that that's something that you know we're very proud of and. Uh, we teach, of course, military history, but we also uh, do American history and uh, international regional uh, studies uh, because we believe that, you know, it's very important that every soldier who wears you know, the name tag United States Army, they, they got to know something about the country that they're serving and the, and the soldiers that they're going to lead. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been a long time since we fought a war in North America and I hope to keep it that way. Uh, so you need to know something about the world, you know, the world around you. Oh yeah. Uh, and so we we do uh, we do invest considerable resources uh, teaching cadets uh, that you know other people think they think differently, mm-hmm. uh, and especially in say for example in the Middle East, uh, they think about war differently than we do. Uh, we think about you know war war is bad, peace is good. There's peace, there's war. Um, that's not necessarily how how you know the rest of the world thinks about uh, the continuum of, of conflict mm-hmm. interesting yeah excellent um all right well that's all the questions i have do you have any um final thoughts or words i appreciate the you know the opportunity here to to talk uh, about the book i think strategy is an, an art it's kind of like a dark art hmm. it's not very well understood um, I'm certainly no expert at it, but as I, you know, as I did my research, I realized that you know, there, there was this gap of senior military uh, officials being able to to have a dialogue with the political masters, with the president, and, and that dialogue is, you know, it, it's crucial. Uh, you know, FDR never went anywhere without either George Marshall. Um, Admiral King or uh, Admiral uh, Bill Leahy, mm-hmm. you know, he had some, there was some military uniform person um, that he could, he could bounce ideas off of. He listened to him. He didn't necessarily take their advice, but he, he, you know, he, he had to imbibe that and then make his own political um, decision mm-hmm. that, that we, we seem to kind of lost that. And I'm not sure if it was, you know, a deliberate choice or, or, you know, the, the, the military profession kind of, you know, went this way of, you know, this is what soldiers do. This is what politicians do. And, and never the twain, you know, shall meet. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, our, our tradition of, of being nonpartisan and, and apolitical is, is vitally important. But at the end of the day, if the policy is unclear, and it's it's the obligation of a, of a professional uh, military officer to to help 
to help the po- the political leaders uh, maybe not formulate the policy, but be able to articulate that policy mm-hmm. so it can be translated into a reasonable and coherent strategy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the same time, you know, uh, from Vietnam, you know, there was this criticism of, oh, you know, politicians getting involved in strategy. Well, I hope so. You know, uh, Secretary Acheson, you know, he needed to be in on those discussions because military actions that you take have political consequences. Mm -hmm. And if there's not somebody in the room who can talk to those consequences, you're going to be at a disadvantage. And uh, the last point I'll make uh, relative to that is in the Korean context, when the negotiations got together, uh, the United States appointed five five members. Four of them were American and one was Korean. Every one of them was a combat commander. Hmm. The communists also put up five individuals. None of them were combat commanders. They were military. But every one of them was intelligence, political, or propaganda officers. Hmm. So from the very beginning, the communists knew that this was a political fight to negotiate an armistice settlement. The Americans thought they were in a military fight. And Ridgway even recognized that. And after about a month, he cables back to Washington and says, please send me a a political guy. Send me somebody from the State Department. And uh, Hmm. Washington turned him down because Washington made a, a policy decision not to engage the communists over political issues during the armistice negotiation. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, I'd, I'd encourage people to uh, to read this book and learn more about these uh, very important topics, I think. Um, thank you. I, I agree. Well, thank you uh, very much for speaking with me. Chris, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, Please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.